Welcome to the Mountain Bike Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Davidson, where it's my job to deconstruct the techniques, habits, and strategies of world-class mountain bikers so that you can discover how to shred with absolute confidence. We'll cover everything from breaking down exactly how you can ride faster with more control to reducing crashes and even how to transform your life with insights from the leaders of our sport. Whether you're a beginner getting started, an advanced rider hungry for an edge, or an elite rider competing to prolong your career, the Mountain Bike Movement Podcast has something for you. So get ready, let's drop in and go hit the trails. Hey guys, my name's Dave. I'm the founder of the Mountain Bike Academy and excited to chat with you guys on this podcast. Today with me, I've got Caroline Washam. She is kind of like a neighbor of mine in terms of geographical location. <laughs> we both got connections to Clemson and we've kind of raced in some of the same similar or same places, even if it's at different times. And Caroline is one of the top ranked female downhill athletes in the United States. All around really cool gal. And one of the coolest things about her is that not only has she been riding for a long time, it's kind of in her family, riding bikes. But probably the coolest thing, again, it's that she is a mountain bike coach. And when we were talking the first time about that, what stood out to me the most is that it's not just about getting people to just shred the gnar all over the place. It's about conquering internal fears, building beliefs, and becoming a better person and a better rider in the process. So excited to talk with Caroline today and wanted to let you kind of introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. I'm Caroline Washam. David, you did an awesome job introducing me. I feel like I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And yeah, I really wanted to say thanks again for hopping on today as well. We've got a variety of types of guests and you know, we see a little bit of everything and I really like to focus in on what not everyone talks about. You know, a lot of people talk about races and results and it's all just like pit talk and that's cool, but there's so much more to life as well that makes riding important. And we talked a little bit about that a while back and um, I kind of wanted to, I did want to touch on those things too. Like, you know, your story, what got you into racing, just so people kind of get to know a little bit of who you are. So I remember you were telling me that I think it was you and your brother. Um, he kind of, you guys kind of got into racing. Was it BMX when you were yeah. about 10 years old? Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, 10 years old. My brother got into BMX racing through his little crew of friends. He's three years older than me. I, at the time, been doing gymnastics and then I wasn't really doing anything. And so I went to the races with him and I think I sat on the bleachers maybe one weekend before I was like, I'm not going to just sit here. <laughs> so I used my allowance money. I've always been pretty good at saving. Even then, I saved my money pretty well. So I had like, what, I don't know, 150 bucks, whatever it cost to go buy Gary Fisher Lush Rush at a local bike shop. And I went out and started racing. It was really like the best way to get into cycling in general, in my opinion. I learned a lot. I learned about being, you know, independent, racing for myself. I was also part of a team. So gathering points for a team. I did that from the time I was 10 all the way up to when I went to college at Appalachian State University. And really, some of the best times in my life with my BMX family. Yeah. So with a lot of them. And luckily, a lot of them got into mountain biking after BMX as well. So I still see them at the tracks and the races and just riding around. That's cool. Um, yeah, it's really cool. And BMX, so it translates really quickly into downhill. Lucky for me, that's what I found when I went to Appalachian State. So a group of guys that were racing at App and they I just happened to run into them at the slalom track at Lee's McRae. And they invited me out to the like club team meeting that was going on like the following week. I went and I was like, yeah, this seems cool. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why that you would say it translates well because the Lee's McRae track, if I remember correctly, it was about the tightest, most active little slalom track I've ever been on. <laughs> at least at that time. I Is it the one where you come out of the start gate and there's a step down to an immediate like 90 degree right-hand berm and then you just get sloshed um, around from there? This is a part of 
maybe we'll talk about, but at the time I really sucked at remembering tracks and courses. So (laughs) I don't like necessarily have it embedded into my brain. I've gotten a lot better Mm -hmm. at that. And that's part of my journey into racing at the level that I am now, actually trying to remember what I just rode. But I think (laughs) being a left followed by a right, but it might've been a right followed by a left. I don't know. It's funny enough that you bring up those first two quick corners though, because that's what I actually sucked on. So BMX, you have big wide berms that you can, you know, huge that you could ride multi riders through them. A dual slalom course, not so much. They're really tiny. You have to be really good at a cornering and bike handling. And that's kind of what I wasn't very good at. One of the guys that I ran into, uh, his name is Will Washam. He is now my husband. He decided that he was going to give me a few pointers. And uh, he was like the only one that came up to me that day and like started talking to me. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like took that, got it down. And um, yeah, now now we're married. So Oh, that's actually <laughs> kind of cute. <laughs> I don't think we talked yeah. about that yet. So no, that's I don't good. Think we did. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm not going to ask what advice he gave you, but. I will ask about... It probably wasn't very good. Might not have been. <laughs> we'll make sure he doesn't listen to this. So, <laughs> Kidding. Um, so that's great. And thanks for sharing that story too. The part I wanted to ask about, could you tell us some more about the translation from BMX to downhill? Everyone else says it. Why do you think that it's so natural to transition from BMX to downhill? Part of the reason I ask is because a lot of our students they used to ride and that's what biking was 25, 30 years ago before mountain biking. It was BMX, you know, that's that's how you get the cool stuff going. It's not on a, it wasn't on a road bike. It was on a BMX. So why, why would you say that it's so easy or natural to transition from BMX to downhill? So on a BMX bike, you're standing, you're not ever sitting down on a BMX bike. So one of the things you learn pretty quickly is body position. So that kind of elbows out, standing in the center of the bike, your balance is the starting place for all mountain bike skills. So that is like innate when you come from BMX to mountain biking. And I think that that's really important. You also, I mean, from BMX racing, I learned to pedal, standing up, sprinting, pulling over rollers, so pumping, lots of a variety of skills, jumping, obviously. But really, it's that balance that I think is the most important thing. And then if you get that, then everything else follows. I will say there are a couple things you don't learn from BMX, (laughs) translating to mountain biking. And one of them is braking. (laughs) (laughs) I started racing downhill, just jumping in with with both feet into uh, downhill from BMX. I did not know how to stop appropriately. So there's a lot of blowing through corners. There's a lot of not knowing when or to break, like breaking over roots, sliding out, things like that. That doesn't translate. That takes a lot of experience and I am still working on it. Got it. I love that. Okay. So that's kind of a good transition because you know, right now I wanted to kind of catch people up to the today. I mean, obviously you are pretty tight with live racing. You've done, uh, there's a lot of story there. You also have um, some current projects as a coach and things like that. So tell us some more about, you know, what you're up to today, current projects, um, just some things that are on your plate right now. After college and getting into the sport with downhill and all that, I, Got out of it a little bit. So I I kind of moved to Charlotte and wasn't really racing anymore. I found the sport again by actually getting a job with Liv Cycling. At the time, it was Liv Backslash Giant. This was seven years ago in 2013. And I just happened to see the job listing after I went to Ray's Women's Weekend. Ray's is an indoor mountain bike park up in Ohio. So it was like that following week, I saw the job listing pop up. I think a friend shared it on Facebook. And I was like, sweet dream job applying. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a a job for a a demo driver position. And long story short, I get it. I spent two years on the road out West. It was 
so fun. I met a lot of people, learned a lot. I got certified as a mountain bike coach during that process up in Whistler with PMBI. That was an awesome experience. And then on one of the times that I was home, I was home very rarely for two years. Uh, I would basically be on the road for four weeks at a time and then come home for a week, you know, if that. So my boyfriend, I already mentioned, uh, Will Washam, boyfriend at the time, he proposed and he was like, yeah, enough of that. Come home. So <laughs> put my two months notice or whatever it was. And with Liv saying, you know, I can't be a demo driver anymore. I got to go home. And um, they were awesome enough to find a position for me, basically create a position with Live Global doing content management, started out as a part-time job, quickly went into a full-time job and I was working from home. It was awesome. I ended up getting back into downhill racing at that time. My husband also announces downhill races. So that's how I kind of got back into it. And um, it took off. I also at that time, 2015, uh, started my coaching business, Spoked LLC. I saw that as an opportunity. I'm like, hey, I have my coaching certification. I'm moving back to North Carolina from being on the road out West. I've learned a lot. And there's still, you know, we were starting to see more women riding mountain bikes in North Carolina. But after I was out West and I saw some of those communities with huge communities of women riding mountain bikes, I was like, you know, we still need something back in North Carolina and in the Southeast to encourage women to get on mountain bikes. And so I just kind of started this little business and I was like, we'll see what happens. And, you know, I got lucky enough to get sponsored by uh, SRAM, who has an awesome women's program, live, um, continue to work with them and was putting on some clinics. Um, that's kind of transitioned over the past couple years into me doing mostly privates and then doing like larger clinics with my sponsors. So at big events like Crankworks and Sea Otter and stuff like that, I will coach with SRAM and their women's program. So I was kind of going full force into my career and my coaching business. And then in 2018, yeah, 2018, my pro racing career <laughs> kind of snuck up on me. And I took that opportunity. I was doing pretty well and having a lot of fun at the races. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to kind of go for this. And I took a step back in my career. I, I went from being full-time with Liv doing content to being part-time again, giving me time for, to race, giving me more time to do coaching as well. But I kind of focused on the races for these past two years. And yeah, that's when I was like, Let's try this World Cup thing. <laughs> yeah. That's been kind of my past two years is like seeing how much I can do um, really before it's too late. And I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but downhill racing is not something that I see myself doing into my 40s. <laughs> and I'm about to turn 32. So I kind yeah. of just like taking the opportunity and doing it while I can and seeing how much fun I can have. I love that. That's a great answer too, because, and I wanted to get your take on that mentality, or it sounds like even if not a lifetime of decisions, but a finger on the pulse, if you will, of decisions that you made to kind of honor that desire to do something cool. You know, I think a lot of people would love to hear what was your method or what was your thought process to keep you in a place in life where that possibility was open to you? And you were ready to take it. Was it on the back of your mind at 10 years old when, you know, you're cheering your dad on at races? Uh, I got to hold on to that myself. Or was it something else? Maybe? What prompted you and what kept you going along those lines? No, not really. Like, I never thought that I would really have an opportunity to be where I am right now. When you mentioned my watching my dad at races, my dad was a, a road racer, kind of casual road racer, but super into cycling and is still super into cycling. He's pretty stoked. On, on <laughs> <laughs> so, he, you know, big part of my life. But he never pushed cycling on me or my brother. My brother found BMX on his own. I decided to race BMX on my own. Nobody told me that I should uh, do that, that that was a good opportunity for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
And when I started racing BMX, I never thought about like turning pro in BMX. I knew that I wanted to go to college. I was always a good student. And that was just like, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do after college. So I was just, I think I've always just kind of taken things one step at a time and not looked too far into the future. I kind of, you know, you can look back and say like, oh, I wish I would have known that when I was in college that I could be racing downhill all over the country or that I could be racing downhill all over the world. In college, I didn't even know that World Cups existed. Like did, but not really. And I didn't really care. Um, <laughs> I was just like, yeah, this is fun. You know, there's some local mountains. I'm going to ride them. But yeah, looking back, I'm like, oh, damn. You know, if I had gotten into this earlier, I maybe I could have been a little bit more competitive. But, you know, I wouldn't have had like, I wouldn't be in the place that I am now if I didn't take all those steps. So yeah, I would say like, yeah, the, the job <laughs> with Liv kind of set me up for where I am now. And I didn't think too hard about it. I mean, mm -hmm. I saw this job opportunity that would take me to the other side of the country. And I was just like, yep, doing it. I was lucky enough to have a family and a now husband that supported that decision. When I got out and moved into this next phase, I saw that there were opportunities to race locally downhill again. And I'm like, I really yeah. loved competition. And I was just like, yeah, let's go for it. And just kind of one thing led to another. And I guess I'm just the type of person that sees opportunities as they come. And then I'm just going to like go for it and mm -hmm. see what happens. I'm not sitting here right now thinking like, oh man, like in five years, what is my life going to be like? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's, I don't know. That's a little just a bit too far ahead for me. Yeah. So I'm taking it one year at a time. <laughs> yeah. And that's a great approach too. So one thing that I'm hearing you say is just being open to the possibility for something that, I mean, think about it. You've represented your country in the world championships. And yeah. uh, now some people, of course, their, their family or their whatever situation puts them at 15 years old getting scouted and, hey, we'd like to put you in the forefront and make you this thing. And then you get to, you know, follow that route. Then, I mean, there's so many people though, that are just fanatics about riding and what it does for them and what it means to us, you know? And I think the most important thing that you said there is just being open to the possibility of, of something that you want happening. And you may not have planned it exactly like that, but you, could you walk us through uh, and again, maybe if you're like me, I don't remember anything at the start gate. I'm too zoned in. <laughs> I haven't raced that much. I'm not a huge mm -hmm. racer. I I like building and free riding. That's kind of my thing. But yeah. for you, I mean, you've, you've spent a lot of time. I'd, I'd say you've probably been at what, 30, 40 high level races at least where you stood on the, the start gate and made it down to the bottom, something like that. It's It's up there. I don't know. That amount, I haven't right? counted in a while. <laughs> I can go back and count it later. But to walk walk us through that, like yeah. what what is it like for you, or even the best part about standing up at the start gate or crossing the finish line at a race where you you know you want to do well and you yeah. want to have fun and and do your best at it? What's the experience like up at the start gate? The start gate is not the best part. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? To be honest <laughs> with you, the start gate is nerve-wracking and there's a lot of different processes that I've learned how to get through that feeling of nervousness and butterflies in your stomach and feeling like you have to pee five million times even though you just all that stuff I figured out how to get through it but I will not say that sitting at the start gate is my favorite part my favorite part well I'm just gonna give you a little story to explain why I love racing so and it's this story about like my first time racing a pro GRT. So that was at Snowshoe, West Virginia, where they just had the final round of the World Cup last year. And this was in 2016. That was my first pro GRT. I get there and I'd never been to Snowshoe before, even though I've been like racing and riding downhill since what, 20, 2009. Um, 
a narrative into snowshoe, had no idea what it was like, but I was like, oh, I've, I've ridden Windrock. Like, it can't be that bad. <laughs> Can I just say something? Yeah. If, if you watch the downhill World Cup from 2019, you'll know that everybody was surprised it didn't rain at snowshoe. Let me guess. Oh, yeah. it, it rained at snowshoe. <laughs> it always rains at snowshoe if there's an event there. Always. It's just the way it is. And thank God it didn't rain at World Cup last year. Because if it did, then um, I think that people would have been slightly less stoked on the end result. Uh, but it ended up being one of the best races. So good. I'd say the best race of the whole year, right? It was definitely the best. It had to have been the best race of the whole year. Partly I mean, because the of the story. finale in, in seasons, right? Yeah, we can get into that for sure. But um, yeah. yeah, so snowshoe though. Snowshoe, snowshoe, the, the track it itself. It's gnarly. It's gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> it's gnarly track. It rains a lot. Um, so yeah, 2016, I show up. I'm like, yeah, I've, I've ridden Windrock this year. Um, like, you know, I think I'm pretty good. So we do track walk. And me and my husband are, you know, doing it alone. And this shows how novice I was back then, not even that long ago. But I was wearing, I think, like Tiva sandals to do course walk. Obviously not. You can do that. I mean, I didn't die during course walk. But so Snowshoe has really steep sections. This was like right after they built this like huge double. um, It was like a road gap on the pro course. It actually wasn't in the race last year. They went around it and made some other cool features, but it was like, I don't know, a, like a 40 foot gap or something. This road gap is huge. I never jumped something that big in my life. That was the first thing I saw. I was like, oh, that's sketchy. <laughs> and then we keep going and then we get to the wild zone and the wild zone is this like, you know, techie rock garden turn. And then you, there's this drop out under the chairlift that doesn't even just doesn't even look right it's like this weird cheese wedge and then you land on this like steep steep embankment to like another drop and I was like I don't even know how to ride that and then you keep going and it's like the steepest just shoot that I've ever ridden in my life to lower hairball which is just rocks just raw rocks to another drop and then yeah and then it's finished but I get to the bottom and I'm just like I'm not talking my husband's not talking to me (laughs) no like nothing good to say and I'm just like I don't know like I guess we'll just see what happens (laughs) you're like well I'm here I I guess I'm a racer yeah yeah right (laughs) yeah I just had to right there's only four women there so I was like okay I'm four pro women I was like, well, you know, I guess I'm just going to do it. And, you know, worst case, I get last and I get fourth and that would be embarrassing, but whatever. So it rained. Mm. Etchy. I just kind of like, I always practiced by myself back then. So I never really knew where I was. Like, I never knew if I was riding good or not. But the thing of it is, you just check one thing off off after another the things that scared me that huge road gap I did it you know like I think I think I did follow somebody into that and um and it was good and it was fun I was like that was awesome and then the wild zone I took that one off by myself did the drop and only later to find out that none of the other girls did it which made me feel really good and I was like oh lower hairballs like fine it's totally fine once you just ride it and raced it and got second and behind uh, Warren Daney, who is, she used to race back in the day, she doesn't race that much anymore, but she was good. She was badass. Yeah. And the two girls were also really badass and I got second. And so I was like stoked. And that feeling of going from like, oh my God, I think I'm going to die if I ride down this course to checking all the boxes off. And realizing you can make it down without dying and then finishing the race and being like, I'm stoked for for the next one. That whole process, the whole process of going through a weekend is why I race. And that's why I love it. So no, sitting up the start gate, not my favorite part, but putting it all together. That's what keeps you coming back. I love that. So I'm really curious, do you have any, and now you might not have a method or a particular routine that you follow, but 
could you describe what works for you to not crash on the 40 foot road gap that you do the first time, even if you're following someone into it or the approach you take to riding, like what kind of things or the mindset or decisions you make, maybe even things you think about or things you do before you drop in, what kind of things work for you to help you get better results around that? There's no like one set method. I would say, for example, uh, you know, conquering the 40 foot gap or whatever, but it's a process, right? So when I saw that jump, yes, it was scary, but I had been through the progression to get there. No, I had not done a 40 foot gap before, but I had done the cupcake road gap. You know, that one, pretty similar. You're not going as fast when you come into it, but what you do in the air is pretty much the same. And I could know that by watching other people, right? So mm-hmm. I watch other people do it. I kind of analyze what they're doing. I compare it to other things that I've done in the past. And then if I feel good about it, then it's like you just make it, you make the decision, right? Like part of what I love about racing is that it kind of pushes you to do those things because I know that I'm capable of them. But if I was just riding, like free riding with my friends, like at the going to snowshoe just for fun, I wouldn't be like, yeah, you know, I really want to go ride wild zone right now. Like I really (laughs) do that sketchy drop. Probably not. But when I'm racing, I'm like, okay, if I want to do, if I'm a win, I need to figure out how to do this. Or let's be real. If I want to not embarrass myself racing (laughs) against (laughs) badasses, I need to do this. So yeah, there's no one set method, but yeah, it's just kind of analyzing it, watching people, figuring out like, yes, I've done things like this before. And then after uh, enough, like rolling up to it, deciding, yes, I can do this. How many times did you roll up to it before actually... So it's funny. I don't know how many times I rolled up to that jump that first time. But even things that you've done before, sometimes for me, it takes some time to like do it again. So like national championships was at Snowshoe as well for 2017 and 2018. So this was after the Pro GRT that I'd done in 2016. And it's still like, I'm like, I've done this jump before, but you, you go up to it and you're like, <laughs> I'm just gonna go around it just this once, but yeah. usually it's like twice during practice, especially a chill practice like um, at a, a pro GRT or a national championships. I'm like, no, I'm just gonna warm up a little bit more <laughs> before I hit that. Yeah, um, and, and it's cool, like for World Cup stuff, and and I'm pretty new with the whole World Cup setup, but a shorter practice time forces you to get over that like pretty quickly, right? That's yeah. like, oh, I'll just do it next time. Um, no, World Cup, you have a very limited practice time and you might only get four runs down that mountain. So you better hit it if you yeah. want to. Yeah, imagine. I mean, if you mess up something on a practice run, you, you know, there goes 25% of what's going to translate into your Sunday result. So fascinating. Yeah. So do you also have uh, kind of a a threshold that you found where it went from, you know, okay, that's a big jump, but I can do it, try it, get it. Oh, that's, that's kind of a big jump. I could probably do that too. And then maybe hit a wall where you're like, okay, I'm going to really have to try here. (laughs) Or maybe this scares me a lot more than normal. Did you find that you have a certain, like maybe 10 feet, 20 feet, 30, 40, 50, 60 that happened? Or was it all pretty much the same? I wouldn't say that there's like a size of a jump that's like that puts it over a threshold for me. It's more like a feeling when it comes to a jump, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and when it comes to jumping and racing, particularly is I I kind of use a few different factors. I'm like, okay, is it going to help me in timing by a lot to jump this jump? (laughs) Are the other people doing it? Do so it, there's some strategy they do it. I like it. Um, you know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. if somebody that I look up to as per, is particularly in um, jumping, right? Like she or he is a really good jumper and I'm watching them do something that makes me nervous and they make it look sketchy. Then I'm like, oh, like 
do I really want to risk that? And, you know, I'm just speaking like for me, right? And like I've said before, I'm 31 right now, about to turn 32. I'm at a place in life where I have a job. I have like some kitties and a puppy and a husband. And like, I don't want to die. But it might be different if I was, you know, 17. Mm -hmm. So I might think about things a little bit different than others, but I do have a threshold. Like, I'll be honest, when I was at Monsignan for world championships, I didn't hit the last jump. Now, I still like, I'm like, I know I can do it, right? But there's a ton of factors involved there. Like, there's a big step down right before it that is really easy to send too far. And if you send it too far, then you're not going to have enough speed to clear that jump. And if you don't clear that jump and you case it and then you crash in front of all those people, that would be really embarrassing. Also, <laughs> six-minute track for me, or I think I did it in less than six minutes this year. I forget what my name was, but it's a long track. It's really rough. My body is tired by the end of that course. And so in my head, like during practice, I'm like, I know I can hit that jump. I know I can do it. I know I can do it from sitting right here practicing, like, you know, however many, you know, up, up the track that I am. But can I do it from starting at the start line and going through Steve Smith's drop, going through that, you know, really rough rock garden, like taking all these big compressions? Will I be able to have the power to make that pop and then potentially hold it out if I case it? And I couldn't say that I could. And so I was like, I'm just going to go around it. Yeah. Three seconds. I'm fine with that. Yeah. And this is something that's brilliant to hear because, you know, again, there's, there's so much emphasis put on the very, very sliver of the very end of progression. Like, you know, there's a lot of focus on that and it's easy to find conversations, what goes through people's mind when they're, and and we all have our moments, right? No matter where you are in life or riding where, you know, that is a thing that very, very fine edge of progression. But what I like hearing is that you have some specific goals, things that are important to you, and you get to be at the highest level and still make decisions about, is it even worth it to hit this jump like that? I know I could, but, you know, either you're going, well, I don't want to be embarrassed in front of, you know, like at least 20 people, right? (laughs) I'm not saying (laughs) it's like lots of 20 peoples. There's multiple. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You don't, you don't want to either be embarrassed or you don't want to, you know, risk injury when, you know, the thing that people don't talk about a lot either is, you know, injury to a professional racer at any level is the same kind of risk and the same kind of thought process as someone who rides for the love of it, for the passion. And maybe they've got a full-time job or kids. I've got two kids and hearing my wife say, don't you dare get hurt. I'm like, we need to talk about the concussion protocol. Like, what do you do <laughs> just in case? And then, then I'm going to go out and make sure I'm not getting a concussion because that's some dangerous stuff. But hearing you talk about that is not only fascinating, but it's just cool to hear that, you know, you can do some pretty superhuman things and awesome things and be just totally human at the same time. And that's probably what makes it so rewarding to be able to stand up at the start gate, drop in and say, I did it. You know, that's, I love that. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Tell us some more about, you know, when you're looking to look into maybe next year, I know right now the race schedule, I think it just got updated, right? Where they're doing some double headers and some things like that. Are you going to be on the race circuit this year? For, yep. for all that or is it what's the <laughs> give us an update on if anyone wants to watch you or, or pay attention yeah. to what's going on there I'm just curious it's kind of up in the air I just found out about it you know all these things were just released my original plan was to go and do uh, Fort William do Crankworx Innsbruck come back home focus on national championships because that's one of my like big goals that I want to achieve at some point in my life is um, a national championship jersey. Like, it might not seem as, like, cool as racing a World Cup, but it's really important to me. So my goal was coming back home, spending a while on just building up to going to national championships this year. And then 
potentially, you know, going to Crankworks Whistler, potentially doing Mount St. Anne again, world championships and Leo Gang was on my list. And that was probably about it. Now everything's changed, of course. Uh, we still don't know when national championships is going to be. But we do think that it's going to happen, but we, we don't have a date yet. I'm really stoked that the Downhill Southeast series is happening. That was released a couple of weeks ago. And because, you know, everything else <laughs> is rescheduled, I'm like, cool, I think I can do the whole series. <laughs> I nice. haven't been able to do like the local series in a couple of years. And it's just really rad having that ability to race like in your backyard and really awesome places. So yeah. and rock sugar this year, which is Oh, like, really? Yeah. And snowshoe and beach mountain, which, you know, I love all those places. And we also have, you know, some pretty good competition here locally. Frida, who lives in uh, Knoxville, she's a World Cup racer. She's an awesome rider. I love riding with her. We also have uh, Rachel Pajou, who goes to Brevard and she races World Cups. Lots of really fast girls that I can ride against locally, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, from all over the Eastern Seaboard. There's too many girls to name here that are really good competition. So I'll do that. And then I don't totally know what the World Cup schedule is going to look like, but I've put a preliminary schedule together and seen if qualification for world championships can happen again. I'd love to get there. It's now in October, which changes things up. The World Cup schedule around it is super tight. I think Crankworks Innsbruck is the week before, which I try to do that because it's they're both in Austria. So it would just be easy. And then, yeah, we'll just kind of take it from there. It, yeah. It's also my five-year wedding anniversary this year in October. Congratulations. Um, That's I'm awesome. Kind of, kind of taking that into account. Uh, my husband's going to definitely, if I get into world championships, he would definitely be there. And so we might take a vacation that didn't involve me racing a world cup following world championships so <laughs> that's exciting. But yeah, you can you can I'll, I'll announce what my schedule will be as the summer goes on trying not to get ahead of myself because i know things can change with coronavirus we don't know what will happen through the summer and you know if i get too excited about doing a bunch of world cups and then they get canceled i don't want to get that bummed out <laughs> Well, I wouldn't be terribly disappointed because that means we could probably go to Pisgah and maybe get some laps in or something. Who knows? Yeah, for sure. um, Riding locally does not suck. (laughs) I've got a fun question for you. And I don't know, just do your best with this one because I don't know. uh, I've never heard this really asked before and I could have just missed it. But, you know, let's say you're going over to like a snowshoe or even maybe not beach, uh, but like a snowshoe or a wind rock. If you had to give it a scale of one to 10 compared to like a Fort William, you know, where would you put those in terms of difficulty? Man. Oh, it's not an easy question, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a super hard question because I think that each track is super difficult in its own way. But I mean, if you took the hardest, most technical section of snowshoe, and you compared it with the most technical section of Fort William, they're pretty much on par, pretty much the same. In fact, I would say that when I was racing in Fort William, and one of the reasons why I wanted to go back, I qualified 19th, and they only take the top 15 women in World Cup, and and I was right there. I even caught the girl in front of me at the bottom in the jumps, which was like a huge bummer because she made me case the jumps. That's beside the point. But Fort <laughs> William, I know um, that I feeling. Felt, <laughs> I felt like the whole course was like really it's like stable, right? Like it's been there forever. Those rocks at the top of the course. I mean, basically, like the whole first quarter of the track is just like concrete. It's like ancient. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. So it's like, it's very predictable. And I felt confident on it because it the, the stuff that I'm used to riding, like at Snowshoe, like at Windrock, that stuff changes all the time. Every year you go back and it's a little bit different. There's a little bit more rock showing. There's a little bit more roots. It's somehow steeper 
<laughs> I don't well, they, know. they just uh, they've got a they've got kind of a, a lever under it and they kind of yeah. tilt it a little bit every year i hear uh, nico gets down there and just you know yeah twist the yeah. lever a little jacks it up sean, sean leader uh, they, they just the, jack it up a little bit training you know I that's think really what the uh, the off-road course is about yeah it's yeah. like they got the off-road course really what they're doing is they're they're getting those car lifts under there yeah uh, <laughs> if, if you know what i'm talking about you've been to windrock uh, that it's funny that you say that because we made uh, me and my riding buddies back when we might have looked a little silly, but I mean, we had guys with like a Bigfoot Rise fork out there. We had like Marzocchi Super Tees, like just ridiculous bikes back in like 2006 and seven. And we're like, these are downhill bikes. And, you know, we'd have our, our chunky three point whatever Michelin tires on our 26 inch, <laughs> our 26 inch wheels out there. And it was so much fun because we were, we were going to Windrock and yeah. In the back of our minds, this was always something that we would say to each other. Like, we're like, yeah, this is, it's like a World Cup track. But in the back of our minds, we're like, are we just telling ourselves that? <laughs> uh, but it, it's kind of, there There definitely seems to be some similarities and in sections of the track could be comparable. So that's fascinating. Thanks for, sure. for sharing that. I've always wondered what you really think about it just from a, your opinion. So that's awesome. Okay. So this is really good so far in terms of just your story. And I, I wanted to ask a little bit, you know, because what we do with the Mountain Bike Academy, it's a lot of focus around mobility and movement versus just flexibility or, you know, an exercise. It's about unlocking, you know, physical potential wherever you are and getting to that next level. So uh, tell us a little bit about you know, and you, you might have a informal or a more formal training process that you do. You might just ride a lot, but what kind of things do you find really help you the most when it comes to your performance on the bike that you've done off the bike? I guess when I got back into downhill in 2016, I hadn't stepped foot in a gym since college. Um, I was lucky in college, because my roommate was an athletic trainer, she worked with the uh, cheerleading team and she was uh, an Olympic lifter herself. So she'd be like, Caroline, if you're going to ride a bike down a mountain, you need to get in the gym. And so <laughs> she like took me in and she like showed me how to like do a squat and a deadlift and all that stuff. And, you know, thank you, Kat. Amazing. So that like built my foundation. I knew how to do all that stuff. But yeah, once I graduated from college and I didn't have that awesome access to the gyms and everything there and I didn't have any money, I, I was like, I'm not going to do that. Um, also, I've never really liked doing anything off the bike. Just going to be honest, like going to the gym or, you know, even stretching. You can ask my husband, like he basically has to yell at me to like, do my foam rolling and stuff. I'm, I'm not the best at wanting to do it, but I know it helps. Um, and the reason I know it helps is because I, I started doing a program, I guess I start working with Jeffrey. It's like 2017. I guess it was right after my first year, starting back in the gym and building strengths and, you know, at ending in, in my twenties, getting back into downhill. Um, when I crashed, I was realizing that like it wasn't good anymore. Like, <laughs> it's not good up. anymore. Yeah. Like, my yeah. First, it's not good. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I'm not like strong, then I'm going to get hurt. It definitely helps getting back in the gym, building up that strength. For me as a lady, my lower body has always been pretty awesome. Like I can, I can squat, but getting my upper body strong and my shoulders working has always been a struggle. And I know you get a bunch of mobility stuff. That's what I've been doing for the past three or so years is trying to get my shoulders activating like they should because I've had a lot of injuries to them. Mm -hmm. Most recently, I had shoulder surgery in October of last year. And so I'm working every day to get that range of motion back in my shoulder. And so I know that everything is connected. And so working on my shoulders and then my hips and my back and everything like that totally helps me to be able to withstand impacts on the bike, to move like in really um, like extended range of motion positions. Like if you get yourself into a bad spot where 
you're nosing in over something and you're like, oh, no, 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 you know, <laughs> you can push yourself out of that with strength and with, uh, you know, joints that actually work. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. Problem. It's huge, hugely important for me. I love that. The whole reason I started the Academy was if you're listening to the podcast, you won't be able to experience it. Every single one of my joints can just basically pull apart. Yeah, she's making a face at me right now. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Caroline. So um, for me, I never got to enjoy the I'm young, it just works. When I crash part, I would get hurt pretty much if I crashed. Uh, if I landed funny, I'd twist something. So I just, I had this automatic, if I'm not strong and supple and moving well, then you're going to get hurt. And um, it's just, it's so much fun to be able to ride. So I've actually known what it's like kind of to be an old guy since I was 15 years old, getting hurt playing football in high school, um, just move the wrong way. And it is just bad. So that was something that as a pro athlete, you obviously have to take care of yourself, but so many people that want to enjoy riding at a higher level, the bikes are so good that you can maybe you're not going to be as fast as a pro, but you can enjoy it as much as a pro. And that means you're going to be putting yourself in possibly fun slash dangerous situations. So good stuff. Now, a couple other things I wanted to talk about with you too. Is there, is there anything else that you would say to someone who maybe they've had a setback or maybe they're hoping to be more connected with the riding community and maybe they just haven't, maybe it's an injury. Maybe it's, they haven't been able to ride as much as, as they'd like, what would you say to them to encourage them to stay on the bike, to keep progressing? What, what do you feel like is um, something you'd like to share with someone who's maybe in a spot like that, especially now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think if you already are a mountain biker and you're looking to get back into it, like find the reason why you love it. and and, and do that more. Um, and, and I think like right now, um, is a really good time to experience that, right? Like we're all having to chill out. Um, we're not traveling. We don't, I don't get to go to Fort William and race my bike down a super gnarly track. Um, all I have is these flat trails, um, that are close to me. I live just North of Charlotte. Um, I'm not, I haven't been on my downhill bikes and snowshoe. So <laughs> I'm not going to Windrock every weekend, but I still freaking love it. You know, mm -hmm. I go ride Lake Norman State Park multiple times a week if it's open and I will have a freaking blast because I like pushing myself on the trail. Like every time I go out there, I go out there and I think about like something like a new cornering trick that I want to try. And I think about it the whole ride. I think about like riding stronger and like, see if it helps me. And like, and you know, I ride by myself a lot and I use those things as ways to keep me going and to like, to get stoked. Like I could go ride for an hour and be done and, and think like, oh man, that was like the best thing I've done this whole week, you know? Yeah. So find why you're passionate about it first. Like don't just do it because you know, you follow Nico on Instagram and he looks like a badass and you want to be like Nico, find out why you want to do it and then do that, you know, yeah. <laughs> power to the people, make your yeah. own ride. I love it. <laughs> and that's awesome. So, and that's something we talked about too, before this was there's a role that the, some elite riders play. They just purely inspire us. Most of us will never get to that level. Then there's the, the group of people who, you know, there are riding buddies and they're there for us to ride with us. Then there's also that group kind of like what you're talking about, which is like, look, you make this your own and here's how to do that. And I love that too. So thanks for sharing that part. I think it's the, it's, I don't think it's a missing piece, but I think it's something that a lot of people are paying attention to now because even with all the, the crazy stuff going on, people are looking for ways to you know, looking for leadership. They're looking for ways to build their own things. I've seen more pump tracks. I've seen more coaching programs pop up. I've seen more people getting on bikes, like kids getting on bikes nowadays than ever before. 
Yeah. And so that's just in mountain biking. I've, you know, I'm pretty well connected with a lot of entrepreneurs and it's happening all over. And so it's just this concept, Caroline, of, you know, find why you want to create an experience, what it means to you and go make it. And then, you know, kind of like what we're doing here is invite other people to it, you know? So yeah. I love that idea. I especially love just, um, you know, my, my favorite part about this has just been you're super down to earth, but you've probably jumped more 40 foot gaps than most people <laughs> and things like that. Uh, and I'm sure there are other things that you've done. that are incredible. We haven't even gotten a chance to talk about. So what I wanted to bring up was um, the section of the interview where it's questions from my four-year-old. So I'm not trying to push riding on him or the other one. They both love mm-hmm. riding in their own way. But um, I just said to my four-year-old, I said, Hey, so if I, if I talk to one of those people that we like to watch race, what would you ask them? And so here's his question. You can do your best with this. He said, <laughs> well, mommy's mad at me because I didn't help make the croissant. So that, that was the first one. I don't know what you had to say about that. But, um, <laughs> but the, the real question was just, you know, what do you love about riding bikes? So, yeah, I know you kind of talked about that earlier, but if you could speak to the four-year-old and all of us, how would you answer that question? <laughs> oh, man. I love riding bikes because it makes me feel like a four-year-old. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, I mean, that's why we keep on doing it, right? Because it's yeah. like a kid again. That's awesome. You could have a crappy day and then you get on your bike and it's like none of it matters anymore. Awesome. Well, I'm going to try to do my best here. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. We'll go ahead and wrap it up here. I had a blast talking to you. We'll have to get together and ride sometime soon. But Caroline, just had a had a blast with you. Thank you so much for, for being on with us today. If you want to learn a little bit more about Caroline, her coaching business is Spoked. You can, I'll actually include the link in the show notes here. It's a local South, correct me if I'm wrong, local Southeast um, one-to-one private coaching lessons with you. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. What I do now um, is, yeah, hit me up. If you want to work together, you have a small group of friends that all want to work on the same thing. I love doing small groups and privates as time allows. I love doing group clinics as well. I don't currently have anything on the schedule, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with all the in-person stuff right now. Who knows, but it'd be good (laughs) for people to know about you. And then also to your sponsors, uh, Live Cycling, SRAM, and also Industry 9, one of my favorite set of wheels out there that I've owned myself. So uh, not currently sponsored with them myself, but um, definitely I can second that they're awesome. And uh, especially the people that build the wheels, they're just incredible. So is there anybody else that I missed on there off the top of my head? Or so Those are my top three sponsors, uh, Live, Live Racing, SRAM, RockShocks, Industry 9. I also work with Schwalbe for tires. I work with Joe's No Flats is another great like local kind of group of people that support that. I work with Flat Tire Defender, great group of people. So yeah. Awesome. Well, great. So thanks again. And we will see you guys around. If you guys have any questions for Caroline, feel free to reach out to me or you can reach out to her directly. We'll put this interview in a couple different places. So if you have any questions or want to learn more, definitely reach out. Happy to connect you with her. So thanks everyone for listening in and we will see you on the next episode. Hey everyone, this is Dave again. Thank you so much for listening in. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast share with your riding friends and follow us at mountainbikeacademy.com forward slash podcast. Also, if you love the show, help us help the riding community by leaving us a positive review. This allows more people to see, connect, get inspired, and it makes this world a better place to ride. Thanks so much for your help, and we'll see you on the next episode.